the only way that there's going to be a bit more certainty and clarity for taxpayers and advisors is either for some court cases and not just Guardian because it needed to be something about a family arrangement rather than sort of washing machine arrangement or that there's legislation brought in to perhaps limit the amendment period and provide some further clarity on what an ordinary family dealing is or perhaps just rewrite 100A completely. That would probably be even better. We can always hope. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 347 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Section 100A. A lot has been said and written about the ATO's recent package of taxpayer alert, tax ruling, tax determination and practical compliance guidelines, all aimed at Section 100A. Today, in this fifth and final episode in our mini-series about Section 100A, let's clear up the outstanding queries. The first question to Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne is, why now? Why is the ATO coming out with all this right now, just after Guardian? And I was asking myself the same thing as well, and a lot of other people have asked the same question. The ATO stated that the reason that these rulings and, and various other products have been released is due to a desire in the community, uh, in the tax community, that is, for the ATO's views on 100A to be made public. And part of the reason for that is that there are ongoing audits where the commissioner is applying 100A. So follows that people wanted to know, well, publicly, what, what is the position? Are there a lot of ongoing audits about Section 100A? Is this a big battlefield for the ATO because I hadn't been aware that this is a big issue for the ATO. I think it is. It has some significance and it's been talked about for the last couple of years at least. And you'll see that there is the case of Guardian, which went on for a number of years. And I'm aware of some other cases that do exist where the commissioner is applying 100A. So it's not a hypothetical question. And so you, you have said you received a lot of questions about 100A. Are they mainly tax agents who have been looking after discretionary trusts that have been distributing to family members on lower tax brackets and are now worried that their clients might be in trouble or them, or themselves, the tax agents themselves might be in trouble? Where, where are the inquiries coming from, from taxpayers or from tax agents to you? From tax agents, the real uncertainty is how far the ATO's views extend, particularly because the arrangements that are covered as green zone arrangements in the PCG are pretty limited. And for example, they don't cover the mere retention of funds by the trustee with the present entitlement being left there where the present entitlements to adult children, for example. So that's probably the most common one. And the question is, well, is that still okay? How long can it be left unpaid? What if funds have been used to purchase a commercial property? 
and others whose view is more along the lines of, well, if I paid money to an adult children, sort of an adult child or someone else, and then they have voluntarily chosen to gift that fu those funds to someone else, isn't it their right to do so? Why, why is that not okay? So those are probably the two main inquiries. Also inquiries about, well, what do I do now? Uh, how do I, you know, broach this with clients? How do I explain that it's a draft and that it goes back to 1 July 14? So there is, there is quite a few questions. Is it very unfortunate timing for the ATO that the Guardian case was lost just before they published this? Yeah, I think it's somewhat unfortunate. My understanding was that the ruling was ready to go sometime in late 2021 and it was delayed. And I'm, I'm not sure whether that was delayed because they wanted to wait for the Guardian judgment or because everyone was going through COVID lockdowns from the Delta outbreak. Or, or what the re reason was, but apparently this was ready to go sometime in late 2021. So it still is a bit unfortunate, the fact that it's being released sometime after or shortly after a case. But I guess on the other side, if the ATO is conducting audits and they are applying this as their view, then you know it's handy to know what that is and have it in the public domain rather than in a private setting between one taxpayer and the ATO. But isn't the Guardian case giving people more confidence again? Because in the end, a court case is stronger than any ATO publication, correct? Yeah, and then this is the tricky part because the Guardian case doesn't talk about adult ch children, has nothing to do with adult children. It's, it's more in the context of what the ATO call a washing machine arrangement. But it does add to the jurisprudence, which is quite limited anyway, on, on, on the remit of Section 100A. And it is worthwhile noting that the ATO lost on three different elements of 100A in, in that case as determined by Justice Logan. So they only needed, the taxpayer only needed to win on one of those, but they had three things that they could rely on that um, meant that Section 100A did not apply in the opinion of the federal court. Is there a difference in legal status between a PCG, a tax ruling, and a taxpayer alert, do they all have the same weight? They all do different things or they, do all, they all have different purposes and then the legal status of each of the documents is a little bit different. So one of these documents is not issued in draft, which is the taxpayer alert. Um, the ATO has a practice, a PSLA on the, the legal status of Or, or why they issue taxpayer alerts. And essentially what they are, they're, they're not issued in draft, they're issued in final, and they're issued as a, essentially a, an alert or a warning to taxpayers and advisors of arrangements the ATO considers to be high risk. Okay, so taxpayer alerts are never issued in draft? Not that I'm aware of. I think they're always issued in final because it's, it's not, I mean, they're pretty serious deals, so you wouldn't want to, say something's a problem in draft and then, you know, what does that mean? Is it really a problem or not? They are issued in final because 
essentially their their warnings to the community that the ATO doesn't doesn't like this arrangement. They think that there's problems with it, and they want to avoid it becoming widespread. It's essentially an early warning about an arrangement. And PCG and taxation rulings are usually issued in draft form and then later become a final version, correct? Yeah, correct. So with, with the taxpayer alerts, the ATO do say that they can issue them before they've finalized their view on how the law applies. So in other words, they can issue a draft view on how the law applies, but issue a final taxpayer alert at the same time. And they also say that alerts are not a source of precedential ATO view and shouldn't be used to provide advice or guidance on technical or administrative issues arising from a particular arrangement. So in other words, they're not law and that's not the ATO saying how the law applies either. It's basically that big reg exclamation. It's the fire alarm going off in the building basically. So then on the other hand, we've got determinations and rulings. Now, when a determination or ruling is finalized, what legal protection that gives you is if you rely on that ruling and you're, you're covered by the ruling, then even if the ruling is wrong, then the commissioner is bound by that ruling to the extent it's favorable to you. So in other words, if the commissioner says our view is Division 7A doesn't apply to anyone and you rely on that, for example, the commissioner can't then, then, then go back and say, well, we think this applies in this situation. So to the extent that you would be worse off if the commissioner changed his mind, you can rely on a finalized ruling. So that means PCG, oh, actually, no, but it's still in draft. So of course, it doesn't give any protection while it's in draft, but let's assume it gets issued the way it is. Then as long as you can meet the criteria as long as you can meet the examples in the green zone, you should you are protected. Well, it's it's not as yeah. It, it, I mean, it's, the next point is that there's only a part of the ruling that is legally binding, and it's the part where it says ruling and the paragraphs that follow that. Most of the ruling is appendixes, which explain the commissioner's views, including all of the examples in this ruling are part of the a part of the back end of the document. And if you look at a ruling, it tells you that this part does not form part of the proposed binding public ruling. So even your statement that saying that, well, if we fit within the example, then it's all fine is potentially not, not true. So this is a draft ruling as well. What a draft does as opposed to a final is you can rely on it. And if you do so in good faith, then you won't have to pay penalties or interest if it turns out to be incorrect. So essentially, there's some protection for, from interest and penalties. So as long as you can argue that you interpreted the PCG in a way and you thought it was okay, given what is said in the PCG, it might give you some some protection being able to say that. If, if, if it makes sense, of course, if it feels too far-fetched, then then it wouldn't protect you. Yeah, so that's the that's the that's the determinations and rulings. So the the PCG, I don't think the PCG really gives you any protection to be honest. The PCG is the ATO's assessment of a risk level. Now, practically the commissioner may say that well, it's it's in the interest of good administration that 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 we don't go and go and assess someone in the green zone or the white zone, but 
there's no real, I don't believe there's any legal mechanism for that. So in terms of sort of like if push comes to shove, how much protection do you actually get from relying on a PCG? The answer is probably not much. Ah, okay, good. So what you were saying before was actually about the taxation ruling. The taxation ruling gives you protection that you can't be worse off by relying on it. What is said within the actual ruling, not in the appendixes, but the PCG, whether it's in the actual PCG or in the attachments, doesn't matter. The PCG doesn't really give you any shield, correct? Yeah, correct. Other than that, if if the ATO sort of agrees to apply those rules, then as a matter of administration, go back and assess. But it's not, there's no legal, there's, well, there's limited legal force to that is what, I, what I'm saying, which altogether with all of this together really leaves clients with trusts um, and advisors in a really peculiar and difficult situation where there's multiple complicated documents. They're each saying slightly different things. They each have slightly different legal status. And a basic question like, can I leave an unpaid present entitlement owing to my adult child? It's There's not a clear answer to that question. Is is kind of an unsatisfactory position to be in. Yeah, the answer is, is no. Well, it's not necessarily no. It, there is not one statement in these documents to say, let, let's take an example. Let's say you make an adult child presently entitled to trust income for five years, year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. And then after five years, the trust entitlement is forgiven. There's not one statement in here that says that that is 100% absolutely not okay. There are statements saying, well, we might look at it further, but there could be good reasons why people do that. It could be, for example, that the adult child is embarking on a business venture where there'll be a director. It could be that they are entering into a de facto relationship and the family collectively would, would prefer that those assets wouldn't be potentially subject to some sort of family law claim in the future. So there are reasons other than tax why a present entitlement might be forgiven at a later point. And just because it's, it is forgiven at a later point and the money was never paid doesn't mean you automatically have a problem. And the facts of Guardian are a testament to that because you know there's arrangements where and the ATO still thinks they're not okay, whereas a court has said there's not a Section 100A problem here. So it's a messy situation. But if a potential family law claim is a justification for not paying out the UPEs and then later on forgiving them, then everybody can use that excuse. Everybody can say, yeah, we don't like his or her boyfriend or girlfriend. We don't trust them. Hence, we are not paying it out. Everybody can use that excuse. Yeah, well, I think it's hard. It's, it's difficult to, to... And the problem with this is that so much of this depends on the particular situation of the family involved. And, and of course, it needs to be genuine as well. It can't just be, oh, look, we're, gonna, we're just going to say that. So it's really difficult to make sort of those, those blanket statements that you always have, you can never forgive a UPE or you, you can always do it and just say, oh, it's family law. So it has to be a genuine concern. If push comes to shove and you need to actually dispute this with the ATO, then... And if the ATO doesn't agree with you, you're ultimately going to need to go to either the AAT or federal court and, and 
be face to face with a with a with a judge or a member and and um, be under cross examination on these points. So it needs to be realistic. You mentioned the family law claim. You also mentioned before that a child might go into business. So is the fact that a child is a director of a business or even a sole trader and hence fully liable with their personal assets, is that a defense saying we don't we don't want the UPE to go into a potential asset pool for creditors? Um, short answer, yes, I think so. Good. And the same applies to directors um, for the risk of a DPN? Yes. Yeah. So then we already have two possible defenses. One is family law claim and the other one is business risks. Well, if you go back to the elements of Section 100A, you need to have an agreement that's entered into before the time that the present entitlement was conferred. Now, if at the time those present entitlements were made, there was no, you know, the person wasn't a director, they weren't at risk, all these other sort of things. And it's because the situation changed that there was later a decision to forgive. That's when you might not be within Section 100A. If all along everything was known, the plan was known all the way through, then you can't, well, it's going to be a lot more difficult to to sort of make those arguments. So that means you need to have an agreement to start with that basically says since you have a business we will hold the uh, distributions back or since there are family issues we will hold the distributions back so as long as you basically say it up front it protects you more there's a higher chance that you can get through no no so what, what i'm saying is so long as it's not agreed at the time the present entitlement is made that they're going to be forgiven. I see. It's, it's actually the other way around. Yeah. You must not agree it up front. You must agree it later. Yeah. So, for example, if, it's, if, if everyone genuinely in intended to pay them at some point and it's only because of a later change in circumstances, then I think it would, it would be hard for the ATO to say that there was an agreement up front that those were going to be forgiven. Okay, so you must avoid the upfront agreement. Something must happen later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, can I just quickly ask, I just read one question that says, can you tell me more about the requirement that a reimbursement agreement must exist before a present, present entitlement is conferred? Isn't the question the other way around? A reimbursement agreement must not exist before present entitlement is conferred, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, depending on whether you're, saying the elements all need to be met or they need to be failed. But in order for Section 100A to apply, there needs to be a reimbursement agreement before the present entitlement is conferred. So this is actually a very, very important point. Yeah, and the ATO have acknowledged that this is correct in the ruling as well because that's what the court said in Guardian. It was There was some uncertainty before Guardian on whether that was the case or not. And Guardian says, yes, that's correct. And the, the ATO does acknowledge that in the ruling. So there's no, there's no question about that. Yes. And in the Guardian case, they actually argued for three years in, in a row that they had no intention, even though they kept doing the same thing for three years. They got away with saying that they had no intention at all each year. Correct. That's exactly what the court said. And what the ATO says, the only difference perhaps in the ruling on what the ATO says is... Well, the point that the ATO stresses is that the conduct of the parties before and after the time may be relevant. So in other words, you, 
it's it's open to argue that the, the later conduct, I guess, supports a finding that there was an earlier agreement. And I guess the difficulty is that if the ATO alleged that it's there, that there is a reimbursement agreement before the present entitlement, then the taxpayer is the one that needs to disprove that. Yes, the onus is always on the taxpayer. The onus is on the taxpayer, yep. Good. So that was the question about the reimbursement. And so now looking ahead, the ATO is basically just going to finalize their drafts and then they probably move on to other shores, correct? Yeah, it's it's the I believe the consultation period for these draft rulings uh was originally coming up uh in, in early April. And I believe this has already been extended and there's been an overwhelming response to for people when they're providing their comments on these on these documents. And so I don't think we're going to see this finalized anytime soon. Uh, to, to, so I don't know when we'll see these finalized. The points that people are most concerned or the, the, the loudest issues I'm hearing are firstly the retrospective nature of, of all of this. Really, a lot of this is quite new uh, and it is a change really in practice from the ATO uh, or at least in a public sense, it's a change in practice. And given that this provision has been around for a very long time, there's been no cases really that support what the ATO is now saying. And there's a, an unlimited amendment period. And the ATO has said that anything past from 1 July 14 is, is sort of fair game. That's the, that's the first main criticism of these documents as a whole, that it, it, is, it is essentially retrospective. And then the second one is regarding the the meaning and scope of this ordinary family dealing. I think, if anything, the the definition of that term in the in the in the ruling, I'm not sure it really helps helps describe what's an ordinary family dealing. And and as we discussed earlier, it's perhaps maybe not exactly consistent with what Guardian said. And I think there was a a view held by a number of people, practitioners, that if the transaction happens within a family, it is an ordinary, it is an ordinary family dealing of its own without sort of needing to go further about, well, is it parents to kids or kids to parents or some other combination? So those are the two main areas of criticism. And both the assistant treasurer and the shadow assistant treasurer have acknowledged that people are concerned about this and those those particular two aspects, the retrospective nature and the interpretation of ordinary family uh, commercial dealing. And and the comments that um, have been made is that uh, from the assistant treasurer is that the government is looking at section 100A very closely. What that means I don't know. Are we going to see legislative change? I don't know. I think the only way that there's going to be a bit more certainty and clarity for taxpayers and advisors is either 
for some court cases and not just Guardian because it needed to be something about a family arrangement rather than the sort of washing machine arrangement or that there's legislation brought in to perhaps limit the amendment period and provide some further clarity on what um, an ordinary family dealing is or perhaps just rewrite 100A completely. That would probably be even better. We can always hope. But to deal with what's in front of us, we have to deal with Section 100A, need to provide advice to clients, explain the ATO's views, explain there's higher and lower risk profiles, and then ultimately it's for the clients to choose what decisions to make from there. I have two questions. The first one is you mentioned uh, July 2014 and the fact that there's no amendment period, so the ATO has said they're going back all the way back to July 2014 potentially. Why July 2014? Yeah, so so the, that that date is mentioned in the PCG as the, as the white zone arrangements, and essentially, for most things that occurred, not everything, but most things before one one July 14, the ATO said that they're not going to go back and look at those. What they've actually said is they will not dedicate new compliance resources to those things. And the relevance of that date is that was the time that the ATO published some material on their website regarding Section 100A. And it was really the first time their views were communicated at all in any sense um, in, a, in, a, in a sort of public forum. Now, the only thing I would say about that website guidance is it's very different to what's actually come out. The ATO said that they will stand by their administrative position that was in that website document between 1 July 14 and 1 July 2022 to the extent that taxpayers better off in that situation. But that's the relevance of the date. That was the first time really that it's brought to anyone's, brought onto the main scene, I guess, um, Section 100A. And my second question is, why haven't there been more court cases? Because this distribution to family members on lower tax brackets has been going on for years. I, I'm surprised that the ATO sees it as an issue. They clearly see it as an issue, but that they haven't done any compliance action on it yet, that there haven't been any court cases, any big audits, etc. You would think that if the ATO was so worried about it, they would do more audits. Do you think the lack of audits just means that the ATF has the feeling that they are walking on thin ice and don't have enough backup? You know, why are there no court cases? Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know. I can't comment on the audit part of that question because, you know, if there's an audit that happens, it's not it's not publicly known. But you would think that if the ATO was taking that position in an audit, someone would challenge it. And I think you, you know, you being in the industry, you would know if the ATO is auditing a family trust left, right and center about distribution to adult children. You'd know, you'd know. You would know by talking to other tax lawyers, by having clients calling you with these problems, you would know. Yeah. And and on the, the, the court side of that, I mean, the only cases that have been decided other than Guardian, the, the only cases that have been decided are, have been very aggressive artificial type arrangements the the only one that's not in that category is guardian and and the only case the ato hasn't won is also guardian so i, I guess that speaks for itself doesn't it i mean if the ato hasn't gone after these thousands of family trusts to distribute to other family members and don't pay it out if the, if they haven't gone after them 
for the last decades, you know, I, I don't know whether there's a high chance that they're going after them now. Yeah, and it's very, so it's impossible to to know what the future is going to hold on that as well. But I guess if it's the case that the ATO doesn't, isn't going to do that, then I think it would be better if that's stated either by the ATO or through legislative change to at least give a bit of comfort, certainty, peaceful night's sleep to people that have done those things previously where the view was those things were were okay and the ATO didn't have a problem with them or or, or, or hadn't communicated that they had a problem with them. My gut feeling is that the ATO is hoping for self-regulation, that just by publishing these documents that tax agents get you know, more nervous and will do this less often. Yeah, well, absolutely. It's a carrot and stick approach. I completely agree with you that these are complicated documents. There's a lot of material. It is far easier to just say never, you know, don't split income or if you split income, pay it straight away because those things are uncontroversial. It's it's the grey and the you know the 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 uncertainty of the arrangements beyond that. But yeah, you're absolutely right that it will change people's behaviour. One interesting proposal that I've heard is uh, using a company. So instead of distributing to adult children, you uh, you distribute to a company, and then you have a, a number of different classes of shares. Perhaps adult children, adult children A has class A and Parents have class B and someone else has class C. So what you've then got is you've got the, the, the trust making a distribution to a company, which it could, it could pay to the company, and then the company declaring a dividend to the child, which remains unpaid. You might think, well, that's, isn't that exactly the same as this issue? The only difference is that what the child is, is, is getting, to the extent they're getting anything, is... They're getting a dividend entitlement, not a trust entitlement, and then therefore arguably uh, taking that sort of arrangement outside Section 100A. Yes, and straight into Division 7A. Yeah, it would be Division, yeah, it'd be Division 7A, yeah. Yeah, it is an idea. The disadvantage is that, A, the co company doesn't get capital gains tax concessions so if the trust has capital gains it wouldn't be beneficial to distribute them to the company and also the company doesn't get any oh yeah no the company can pass on franking credits if the trust distributes franked dividends to the company the company can pass these franking credits on so that would work yeah 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 but if Division 7A wasn't there. Yeah, if Division 7A wasn't there and, and also if, if the ATO didn't see through the arrangement as trying to be a way to get around Section 100A, for example, and just apply Part 4A, for example. So I'm not sure that strategy has legs, but it's been suggested by various people. It's definitely good to have a company on the side as a bucket company, you know, because it gives you timing delay. It allows you to defer income. Absolutely, yep. Welcome back. So this was the last episode in our mini-series about section 100A. In the next episode, episode 348, let's start a new topic and go back to international taxation. Bradley Murphy and Darren Catherell of Morphy Tax will talk about double tax agreements with you. 
Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.